Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. We've had a couple elected swear and then a, a lobbyist, but she was kind of drunk. That was a whole other conversation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was live, too. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, last night's debate between the top four candidates for the U.S. Senate brought their differences into sharper focus on topics ranging from international issues like the Israel-Hamas war to homelessness here in California, with East Bay Democrat Barbara Lee mocking Republican Steve Garvey's account of meeting and talking with unhoused people in Los Angeles and other parts of the state. I have just got to say, as somebody who's been unsheltered, I cannot believe how he described his walk and touching and being there with the homeless. Come on, please. Orange County Congresswoman Katie Porter also took aim at the former L.A. Dodger for refusing to say whether he'd support Donald Trump. Well, California, I think what they say is true. Once a Dodger, always a Dodger. While Congressman Adam Schiff from Los Angeles showed disbelief that Garvey would even consider supporting his fellow Republican for president. What more do you need to see of what he's done to be able to say that you will not support him, that you will not vote to put him back in office? What more do any of us need to see? For his part, Garvey spoke mostly in feel-good generalities, holding himself up as the only outsider in the race and comparing the three Democrats running against him to the Houston baseball team accused of cheating their way to the World Series. You're banging on that trash can just like the Astros did a few years ago. And that is literally inside baseball. Joining me today on The Breakdown, two folks who covered the debate in Los Angeles last night and will help us with all the baseball references and more. KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos and Christopher Catalago, California bureau chief for Politico, which, by the way, was one of the sponsors for the first full-scale debate of this Senate campaign. Marisa, Chris, welcome. Thank yes, you so much. Well, let's begin big picture, Marisa. You know, um, one of the jobs in a debate, especially one like this, they have to distinguish themselves from one another, uh, maybe clarify things for the voters. How did they do? You know, it was interesting. I kind of expected a little bit more um, kind of zingers between the Democrats, because as we know, as the only people who have been paying attention to this race so far, uh, the three of them have pretty identical voting records in Congress. Right. And that is sort of like the question here is like, how do you then, you know, appeal to Democrats and convince them that you're better than one of the other candidates? especially with Schiff and Porter, because they're, they've been kind of mainstays on like cable news. They're pretty familiar faces, at least to people paying attention. Um, but a lot of their attention last night was actually on drawing sort of differences with Garvey and trying to get him to elicit his positions on things. So 
I would say if you were a voter just tuning in, um, you probably didn't get a huge amount of understanding of the difference in policy, you know, differences between the Democrats, definitely in style. And, and I think you did get to see their personalities for sure. Chris, what would you add to that? I mean, clearly they're each running in slightly different lanes, although I would say that maybe uh, Lee and Porter kind of fighting over the same group of voters. Who did the best job of maybe, you know, edging out the other if and maybe winning over some of those undecided voters. Yeah, it's it's it is difficult for all of them because in Congress these three members vote together, you know, over 90% of the time. So finding policy differences between them uh like on Israel is a, is a difficult thing. The other thing that happened in terms of dynamic is Katie Porter really tried to drive this populist message very similar to um, Elizabeth Warren's say in the 2020 uh, presidential campaign and in in Massachusetts, uh, she obviously being a former student of Warren's and the other Democrats weren't really in position to take that on. I mean, they did take on Porter a little bit in terms of her style and whether she's gotten stuff done, um, but they weren't challenging the overall message. And that allowed her a lot of time on many of these issues, whether it's, you know, big pharma on health care, whether it's the oil companies on climate to say, you know, this is the fault of these greedy corporations. And then you didn't really get pushback from Democrats on that. And so she had these uninterrupted, you know, minute long answers on several policy issues uh, that allowed her to get her points out. Um, Barbara Lee, some differentiation on Israel there with Adam Schiff. But like you say, for the most part, uh, it really was a contrast with Steve Garvey and also just trying to project to maybe some folks who could vote for Garvey that like this guy's just not ready for prime time. You shouldn't throw your vote away. Um, you should come with me, essentially, the Barbara Lee and uh, Katie Porter argument and really make this a competitive race with Schiff. And we're going to get into some of those uh, issues like uh, the Israel-Hamas war a little more in just a little bit. But Marisa, Steve Garvey got an awful lot of attention last night, and I wouldn't call it love uh, from the other three Democrats and uh, and also from the moderators, um, really pressing him. And I'm wondering, you know, Garvey has never run for office before. He was really a blank canvas, I think, for a lot of voters, and except for maybe his baseball career. Um, how good a job do you think he did in trying to kind of signal to Trump voters that he's their guy without alienating perhaps moderate Republicans, if there are any, uh, you know, that might that he might need to need to get into the top two? He didn't say much, right? He didn't take a lot of positions. He really waffled on a lot of stuff. But he did send, I think, some sort of bat signals to the Republican base you know, when he was pressed on whether he would vote for Trump for a third time, he's acknowledged that he did in 16 and 20. He was like, I'm not going to make that call until, you know, it's time. And but then he also sort of as an aside said, I don't think Biden's done a good job. And a lot of people say the world was safer under Trump. So, you know, it's not I wouldn't call it red meat, but it was at least uh, an appetizer of sorts uh, for, for the kind of more far right crowd. Um, I think, yeah, the question is, did anything he said bring anybody sort of independence, even center, you know, right Democrats or Republicans to him. I, I don't know, because he really like like I said, he he struggled to articulate any sorts of positions. Um, he really relied as he has throughout if you know this campaign, quote unquote, I'm using air quotes because he hasn't been out campaigning much. Um, 
you know, he, he, he tries to really rely on his experience on the baseball field. Um, and I just, I don't know. I don't know that it's going to get through. I want to uh, talk a little bit about the economy because voters often say that is their top issue. And uh, Melanie Mason from Politico asked the candidates to rate the economy from one to 10, 10 being the best. Schiff went first. He gave it a seven. Uh, Barbara Lee gave it a six. And let's hear what Katie Porter had to say. She gave, a, a, I think, the most nuanced answer on this. Well, I would say it's a five, but that's because we have an average. We have people who are experiencing a 10. CEOs of gigantic corporations, people who have generations of inherited wealth, and we have millions of Californians, including our farm workers and others, essential workers, for whom every paycheck is a struggle. Chris Catalago, um, what did you think of that answer and the fact that, you know, going first, Schiff gave it a seven, which ended up being the highest rating. Uh, does that kind of, do you think, establish Porter's bona fides in terms of being for the average working class person a little bit? Yeah, I think she certainly was trying to do that. And you saw with Schiff giving sort of, you know, from a political standpoint, seven is kind of the perfect answer. You worry in a question like that, that you're going to say something that's too offensive to say Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom or these Democrats who really run the you know U.S. economy and the state economy, and so Schiff was kind of safe there. Porter's with the you know coming at it from the from the law pers- uh, professor perspective gave this uh, answer about it being an average, and I think her point was basically that um, a lot of people are struggling, and it allows her to get back to her her main argument, which is that uh, California really needs an outsider, someone who hasn't spent much time in Congress, someone who's willing to really take on the system, um, and someone who's frankly going to look out for the little guy. And so that that set her up um, to do that. And she she doesn't have as many qualms maybe as some of these others in taking on the party. Um, she doesn't have the endorsements like Schiff does from the Nancy Pelosi's of the world. And so she's a little bit freer Uh, to kind of speak her mind on that and break with the party a little bit. And Marisa, uh, Garvey talked a lot about competition and, you know, lack of government regulation to free up, uh, you know, jobs and getting things done, building more housing and that kind of thing. Did he talk a lot about it? (laughs) (laughs) Does that work for anybody, do you think? Or is that it seemed a little like 1980s rhetoric? It did. And I think we heard him sort of trying to echo Reagan in numerous ways. But look, those are the sort of baseline positions, I would say, for a Republican uh, of any sort in this day and age. And I do think that, you know, he hit that. He hit border security. He hit public safety. He hit homelessness. He just didn't say what he would actually do about any of them. All right. We are going to take a very quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation about last night's debate and maybe what comes next down the road. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures. Then you should check out the Bay Curious book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find the link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfetta from Throughline. 
If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We're talking with KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos and Politico's California Bureau Chief Chris Catalago about last night's debate in L.A. with the leading U.S. Senate candidates. One of the big issues that did come up uh, and, of course, is a differentiator, I think, especially among the Democrats, is the Israel-Hamas war. And Barbara Lee, I think, clearly has a brand of having opposed uh, war generally. She was the only vote in Congress in 2001 to give authorization for uh, use of force uh, to the uh, to President Bush uh, going into Afghanistan. And let's just hear a little bit about what she had to say. She was the very first to call for a ceasefire, and she described her position this way. Let me, let me just say, first of all, I voted against the authorization to use military force right after the horrific attacks of 9-11. I voted against the Iraq authorization. And I said then, and I'm saying now, it could spiral out of control. You see what's happening. It's escalating in the region. Chris, you know, we've seen polls showing that this issue really divides Democrats uh, pretty evenly in terms of do they sympathize more with Israel, more with the Palestinians? How do you think that issue plays, not just for Barbara Lee, who we heard right there, but just in general in this, uh, you know, this primary coming up in March? Yeah, we saw over the holidays the the potency of this issue uh, when Katie Porter came out uh, and, and called for a ceasefire herself after several weeks of being uh, kind of on the sidelines and not taking that position. And part of the reason, obviously, is she sees... Barbara Lee really trying to consolidate progressive voters. This is um, one of the main issues that separates them. Um, I was a little bit struck by the fact that uh, Lee did not press Porter more on her position. Porter has called for a ceasefire, but after a number of very tall order conditions are met, you know, conditions that arguably are not going to be met anytime soon. And so the idea for Lee could be, you know, you're coming out for this for political reasons. I've been here the whole time sort of thing. And, and they kind of let Porter off the hook a little bit there. And of course, Schiff um, has been adamantly opposed to a ceasefire from the beginning and is saying that when you have Hamas saying they want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, there's really nothing um, that Israel can do besides continue um, to fight there. And so Porter sort of slipped out on her answer. Um, but this is this is really the issue that Lee is counting on. It's when we saw her kind of, you know, surge a little bit uh, or come back a little bit in this race, you know, catch a little bit of momentum. And she'll continue to try to do that. But I think, yeah, not pressing um, Porter on why she sort of flipped back into that position or flipped into that position, I think, was a missed opportunity for Lee. Yeah, Marisa. And I, yeah, I mean, two things, two notes. Yes, in general, I was surprised at how little they both went after each other, even how little they went after Schiff. I mean, they really let sort of the moderators do the job in terms of pushing the other candidates. And then the second thing is, I actually thought one of the things Garvey said was the most insightful and more most specific thing, at least in terms of like his own philosophy, where he said unequivocally, there will not be a two state solution in this lifetime that he basically said the October 7th attacks made that impossible. 
I've took somebody without any foreign policy experience and just like given this current state of affairs, um, I found that pretty surprising. I, I sort of I, I didn't expect to hear something that strong from him. Um, and, you know, I don't know how much it matters even if he was elected, but it was interesting. <laughs> well, I wonder, because if you look at the surveys on this question, it seems like the younger the voter, the more sympathetic they are to Palestinians and the Palestinian cause. They're also among the least likely folks to vote in an election. Do you think, Chris, that you know, did either any of these candidates, especially Porter and Lee, do anything to, to, to really signal to younger voters, of course, how many are watching a debate on a, on a Monday night? We'll, we'll see. But how, to, you what know, about the clips on social? To, the clips on social. <laughs> there you go. That is, you know, TikTok, whatever. Like, did, did they make any headway, do you think, with those voters? I think Lee tried. Um, a lot of what... Uh, Lee tried to do, I think, was sort of weave her own personal experiences into this debate in a way that I I don't think others did as much. And I think she talked about um, her time being unhoused in, in a question about homelessness. Um, she talked about her her votes, uh, you know, against wars before, obviously, some very uh, some very famous ones there where she was out all by herself. Um, she talked about having her own um, decision over making uh, over having an abortion in Texas before um, Roe v. Wade, where she made this decision with her mother. And so, you know, when it comes to like, you know, all of these folks are politicians in their 50s or older. You know, you're a young voter in California. You haven't had a chance in quite some time in a competitive Senate race. I do think Lee is trying to sort of connect with folks in that way uh, through her own personal experiences. And also just like we said, being more progressive on those issues and hoarders obviously coming at it from a more um, a more populist side. One of the issues that has really worked for Democrats in particular since the Dobbs decision is abortion. And Garvey, of course, you know, most Republicans uh, are, are anti-choice, anti-abortion. Um, and Garvey tried to kind of thread that needle, saying that he would respect the will of the voters in California who are clearly more pro-choice. And Melanie Mason from Politico, one of the uh, moderators, really pressed him. Let's listen to the exchange between her and Garvey. So to follow up on that, does that same logic then of supporting the will of the voters extend to issues like guns or even supporting President Trump, where California voters have made their views pretty clear? Well, I have my opinions, obviously. And with common sense and compassion and a, and a, a building of consensus, you know, I'll look at all the issues. I think I'm fair. I think the people of the state of California and the country, the millions of people that uh, uh, I've interacted with uh, over the years have taught me that it's building a consensus and listening. Maurice, I think if uh, if you're a woman uh -huh. or if abortion is your top issue, you hear that word salad and that says we can't trust him. That's what I hear. What do you hear? Huh? That's what I feel like. He didn't say anything. I mean, and I think this is the challenge again, right? Like if he wants to be in the top two, he needs to appeal not just to the Republican base, but then obviously it would really help him if, you know, they came out in spades for this first election. He has no, you know, if he makes it to the top two, he would have no chance of winning unless he could get sort of more moderate um, folks across the political spectrum. So or at least party spectrum. So, you know, I think he wants to have his cake and eat it too. And and I think at a certain point that has diminishing returns because people kind of read between the lines and go, well, you say you have your own opinions. Why shouldn't I think you're just going to go with those if you get elected? 
Chris, you know, were you surprised at all that he didn't just embrace Trump? You know, just I, and I realize that's like a death knell for November. But I think realistically, he wants to get into the top two. He needs to consolidate Republican votes. Do you, how good a job do you think he did in, you know, getting that done? Or was it smart to try to, you know, kind of go that middle ground or, you know, thread the needle, whatever metaphor you want to use? Yeah, a few things here. I mean, we have to note that Katie Porter and Adam Schiff, to an even larger degree, are the only ones um, running, you know, any substantial amount of money in TV ads at the moment. So I think Garvey really is counting on consolidating Republicans just based on them looking at a ballot. A lot of them who will not watch these debates and seeing, you know, professional baseball representative as his uh, ballot designation and then voting for him because they have some faint memory of him as a sort of fading baseball star. And so he's taking a big risk here. The other two are on TV. Um, He has not sent a clear signal that he's with Donald Trump. And so what really does differentiate him from the other Republicans on the ballot? Uh, You know, you'd think that he would. This is going to be a question that is going to hound him until he gives an answer. And so whether it's before the primary or after the primary, the only real impact you're having is sort of for the moment – halting the career of potentially Katie Porter if, you know, Adam Schiff is really ahead in the polls. And so the practical impact of not just coming out, consolidating Republicans, coming out for Trump and owning that um, in California is that maybe he doesn't get through the primary and he's just taking a risk. And so I, I sort of agree with you. I think that you come out, you answer the question, you say, you know, Biden's not the right person. It's a binary choice. And then you move on and it, it would clearly get him through the primary if you yeah. get that. One of the issues, Marisa, that came up, and Katie Porter has raised this before, to differentiate herself from the other three is earmarks, which is a kind of an inside Washington thing, but it's a way that lawmakers uh, put things into spending bills to target the things in their district or their state. And Katie Porter has said she is against uh, earmarks. Um, how do you think that issue plays in a, in a primary in a state like California, where the other three are clearly saying, look, you know, you do that, and you're, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. Yeah, I think that's an issue where, to me, it's really clear that you would need a, a, a bigger kind of longer general election campaign to flesh it out and make it kind of an issue that people are paying attention to. Um, it's a little wonky. It's a little in the weeds. It's incredibly important. I mean, it's a very important debate and conversation, but I just don't know that given how little the voters appear to be, you know, paying attention to this race until maybe like next week or whenever they get their ballots, that that is going to be the kind of issue that people seize on, particularly in a year where, you know, you have Trump winning the nomination, apparently, where you have so many other big policy questions. But if this ends up being, say, a shift Porter matchup in the fall, I think you could make some hay of that. And I do think that there are people, if they're like getting really in the weeds on this research, would maybe, you know, have questions. Some people may love what she's saying about it. Um, I think the challenge is it's an easier case in some ways to make for critics of her because at the end of the day, you know, it's like kind of like nuclear disarmament, right? Like like she can say we should reform earmarks and that, that it's, you know, corruption and, and it's a problem of special interest controlling things. But 
unless every other state is going to stop using them and I don't see a world in which she can actually get them banned, it kind of puts California at a disadvantage. And that's something that Schiff alluded to last night. And I think he would really hammer home if it's a if it's a matchup between them. Chris, as somebody who's covered Washington quite a lot, uh, what do you think about this issue? Does it seem a little odd that uh, Katie Porter is like really you know throwing down the gauntlet on this of all things? Yeah, it's sort of one of these things that you think she would be attacked on rather than her trying to go on offense over mm-hmm. it because you have you have an easy sort of hit on her, which is like you think Wyoming should be getting money that California taxpayers are sending to DC. And so, but she's really doing it's I I do think it's trying to send a broader signal that she's not yeah. part of the club. And it's a way for her to bring up this idea that Adam Schiff has been there for decades. He's taken all this money from folks who've gotten earmarks. He's part of the problem. He's part of the system. He's been there too long. I'm from the outside. And so I think she'll sort of, on balance, she's willing to take the outsider status. I'm for blowing up the status quo, even if it means taking these hits from all these other members of Congress who say, like, this is the way we get things done. This is the way to kind of grease the wheels with this pork barrel spending. Um, there's also been some notable changes, not to get too nerdy on earmarks, but over the years when they did bring them back, you know, these are supposed to go to nonprofits now um, and governments, which is a lot different than the system before where they would go to private for-profit companies. And so I think there are a number of things folks like Adam Schiff can say, which is like the system's already been reformed. You know, we need money for homelessness. Uh, the mayor of L.A., the mayor of San Francisco, these folks are asking us, and this is my job uh, um as a representative for the state to bring home the bacon. This is what Dianne Feinstein did for decades. This is really what uh, gave her, you know, the position she had. Um, And so it's a, it's a risk for her, but it's obviously one she's willing to take. And we know that because she's put this in her TV ad. It's, it's not that wonky. It's, or at least it's, it's not to her. She's, she's actually putting it in, you know, the 30 seconds that she's putting before voters. And so I think we should be talking about it because that's how she's trying to advertise herself. Well, as a, a way of wrapping up here, both of you are in Los Angeles where the debate was last night and the Oscar nominations were announced this morning in L.A. So I have to ask you both, who wins the award for best performance on that stage last night? Chris? I'm going to say Porter. I mean, we wrote this last night. I think she had the most to gain uh, by turning in a performance um, that really could kind of show a range, show what she wants to do. Um, And I think she did do that for a lot of the number of reasons that we said, Um, whether it's enough to get her over the hump, you know, TBD, we'll see. Um, But, you know, she had the most to lose, I think, up there. And I think um, she did the most for herself in a 90 minute debate. Yeah. Marisa, what about you? So as not to say the same thing. I, I agree. I think Porter had a good night. I think all the Dems did. Um, I thought Lee was kind of a surprise sleeper hit. I feel like there's been a lot of questions about whether she can kind of um, excite folks, how she'll perform. Um, you know, she's the oldest candidate on the stage. She hasn't been polling as well. I thought she really kind of gathered steam as the night went on. Um, I thought she was really good that 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 we heard at the top of her kind of hitting Garvey on his homelessness stuff. Um, I think worked. And I think if people are listening or if they catch some of the clips on social media in the days to come, she could win over some voters with a lot of her messaging. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, all of them showed that this is still a pretty wide open race. The last poll showed more than a fifth of voters still haven't decided. So 
you know, but maybe people will actually tune in. It was only 90 minutes, guys. You can do it. Yeah, and uh, well, there will be another one, I think, on February 12th. Ballots go out February 5th. So, uh, you know, people are going to start uh, honing in on this definitely between now and the March primary. All right, that's going to do it. Christopher Catalago from Politico, Marisa Lagos from KQED. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Scott. Thanks. That is a wrap for Tuesday, January 23rd. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.